Hey, it's Jordan. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of Thin Air Podcast. Our podcast is supported by you, the listener, with generous donations over at patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. Your donations help us to pay for archival research, website fees, new equipment, and much, much more. We love that our fans support this show with monthly contributions of amounts as small as a dollar. Anything helps. If you like what we do, please consider checking out our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. And if monthly donations aren't your thing, we recently added a one-time donation link at our website, thinairpodcast.com, where any donations are accepted and loved. Okay, thank you for all of your support and on with the show. It is something that even today, I hear people tell me about how afraid they were after this happened. They still remember that feeling, that, that fear that, that they had. Small Town America, 1953. If this were a movie, the camera would zoom over pastel, family-sized Chevys rolling down idyllic streets lined with soda shops. On the radio, you'd hear music, a romantic ballad maybe, like Vaya con Dios, a western that was the number one song for 31 weeks that year. Girls would wear big poodle skirts, their ponytails pinned up high on their heads, often with a bow. Boys would be dapper, hair slicked back with pomade, cashmere sweater, and jeans. People like to think of the 50s as a more innocent time, a time when things were simple. La Crosse, Wisconsin was a place that lived up to the nostalgic stereotype back then. Near the Minnesota border, right on the Mississippi River, the town was thought of as a great place to raise a family. The sleepy college town was home to the then-named La Crosse State College Eagles, a downtown with old brick buildings and iron lampposts and many brand-new suburbs with shiny new houses. The city was home to Evelyn Hartley, a 15-year-old high school student who was smart, well-liked, and overachiever. But on October 24th, when Evelyn was violently abducted while babysitting, all of that innocence was suddenly gone. It was the night of the big game at La Crosse State University um, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Anybody who could get a ticket to that game went. That's Susan T. Hessel, author of the book Where's Evelyn? The 1953 Babysitter's Kidnapping That Shook the Nation. Susan is a personal historian and writer and has also lived in La Crosse for most of her life. Okay, well, it is, it is, uh, it's a very, very beautiful place. There are bluffs that, that line both sides of the river that, especially in the fall, are just so full of color. Every fall, I'm just especially glad that I, I live here. At the time, it had about 47,000 people. It was like a TV town, that innocent 1950s, 1960s TV town, where mom and dad, mom stayed home, dad went, went to work. Um, you know, there was a downtown, there was, there was civic pride. I mean, it was a pretty innocent community, and it really 
I think that innocence was shattered, absolutely shattered. Back to that night. On October 24th, nearly everyone in town was attending the homecoming game at the university, the La Crosse State Teachers College versus rival River Falls. If you've ever been in a college town, you know these kind of nights. The town is practically shut down. So a family named Rasmussen needed a babysitter, and the one they usually had all of a sudden couldn't do it. Mr. Rasmussen taught at the university, as did the father of his usual babysitter and Evelyn Hartley's father, Richard. Somehow it was arranged that Richard's daughter, Evelyn, would become that babysitter. The man she was babysitting for, physics professor Vigo Rasmussen, had two children with wife Madeline, a seven-year-old girl named Rosalind, and a 20-month-old girl, Janice. That night, the whole family was going to the game together, excluding baby Janice, who would stay home with a sitter. It makes sense that Evelyn would babysit rather than go to the game, even though she may have wanted to. Maybe she was doing it as a favor to her dad, Richard, a biology professor at the college and a colleague of Rasmussen's. Not only was she close to her family, but Evelyn, also known as Evie, was an excellent student and wasn't one to get into trouble. The kind of girl who was known to do the right thing. What did you discover about Evelyn? What was her character like? She was a very good student. Uh, serious, and yet she was also a kid. The, the best friend talked about um, the two of them, when they were young girls, climbed over the fence for the municipal pool and went swimming in their baby doll pajamas. That was really kind of sweet. Yeah. Um, you know, they, that she, um, she liked music. She had this um, ukulele, and they'd, they'd be singing as, as she strummed the the ukulele, they'd be singing as you walked around town. For an article in the Chicago Tribune, written three days after her disappearance, those around Evelyn were interviewed to see what she was like, what people thought of her. She got glowing reviews. Quote, Teachers and students described her today as vivacious and studious, bubbling with energy for student organization activities. Popular with both boys and girls in her class, she has no serious boyfriend and is regarded as shy in social contacts with the opposite sex. Evelyn was also an active member in her church. Again in the article, quote, Evelyn entered into her church with the same energy which distinguished her in school. She is an officer of the Presbyterian Youth Program and the church's Westminster Fellowship. Her reverend has described her as quiet, dependable, and devoted. So it seems no one had anything bad to say about her. She was a church-going, non-boyfriend-having, straight-A student. And that night, rather than go to the game, Evelyn chose to babysit and to do homework. In addition, she was filling in for the usual babysitter who decided to go to the game instead. Good old, dependable Evelyn. And Mr. Rasmussen picked her up as, as fathers did and drove her to the house. She hadn't babysat there before, and of course it was such a new house, it was like months old. The family had been there just a few months. Professor Rasmussen picked up Evelyn at 6.30 p.m. and drove her to his house on Heschler Drive. He instructed her to put the baby to sleep at 7 and to check on her 15 minutes later and put a blanket on her. At 6.45, the Rasmussen said goodbye to Evelyn and little Janice and left for the game. This was the last time Evelyn was ever seen. It was the normal practice that whenever Evelyn babysat, she called home at 8.30. 8.30 came and went. Her mother was feeling very nervous for some reason. Something bothered her, made her feel that something wasn't right. So Mr. Hartley decided to call 
and he called multiple times and there was no answer, something very unusual. We've all had this happen to us, a sense that you can't shake, that something just isn't right. And Ethel, Evelyn's mother, her foreboding feeling of something bad happening, like a sixth sense, must have been a strong one. She doesn't let it go, and Richard actually goes to the house to check on her. In my research of this story, I read that Evelyn's mother had a bad feeling as early as 7 p.m., just half an hour after Evelyn left home but she didn't call, shrugging it off, figuring she would wait until their check-in time at 8.30. So when Evelyn misses the call, Richard drives over to the Rasmussen house just a short drive away. So he decided he was going to go over there and see what's going on. He went there, pounded on the door, rang doorbells front and back, and he could hear music, he could see lights around the house, he could not see Evelyn inside. He arrived just after 9 p.m. He knocked on the door, tried it, found it locked, as was the back door. So he decided to walk around, and he saw um, that there was a basement window he could go into. So he backed himself into that basement, discovered a short ladder at at the bottom, and he came down, and the first thing he saw was one of her shoes in the basement. I can only imagine what that felt like as he raced upstairs, found the other shoe in the living room and um, and her books scattered across the floor and the new glasses she had just gotten that day were also on the floor. A few drops of blood appeared to be blood on the carpet or on the rug in that room. He knew something very bad was, had happened. Uh, he ran to check on the baby who was sound asleep and then he went across the street to call for the police. Richard called police at 9.49 p.m. that night. Why he called from the neighbor's house rather than the Rasmussen house is unclear. Maybe, not knowing what to do, he felt safest somewhere with people. Police arrived shortly after. One of the police officers on call that night spoke with a reporter years later. And received the call of a missing girl or a missing person. And it was close to quitting time, so... I mentioned to my partner that we should get this cleared up in about 10 minutes and we'll be able to go home on time. Don Shanefeld and his partner, Ken Johnson, were the first to arrive on the scene. When they got the call, they were watching the football game from their squad car. It took only minutes to get to the Rasmussen home. When we got out there, we found, uh, I believe we found uh, Mr. Hartley present. And the girl was gone. I, there was a young child, if I'm not mistaken, left in the house, in the bedroom, in the crib. We figured we had something fairly serious at that time, so we notified headquarters. and They contacted the investigation bureau and they sent out a detective. Detectives found more disturbing clues that night. Three other windows around the home had pry marks where someone had tried to get in. There were footprints left from a size 11 tennis shoe in the dirt near the window well and in the living room. And perhaps the most telling evidence, blood was found both inside and outside of the basement near the window. The outside puddle of blood was 18 inches across, meaning someone was seriously hurt there and possibly laid there for a moment. A search dog was brought in and a blood trail was found. 
there was a bloody handprint on the Rasmussen's garage, and an adjacent house had stains on the exterior walls. Several pools of blood through the neighbor's yard show she was dragged or possibly carried. At one point, the puddle of blood was so large that police believed the assailant stopped and rested her on the ground. The scent ended two blocks away, where it was thought that she was placed into a car. Police came, the district attorney came, and this was before television, but the next morning, you know, the story got out and it was announced in churches that she was missing, and all of a sudden there was a mass of humanity that arrived at the Rasmussen home in front and in back trying to, you know, the scene was not well preserved. Uh, there were some barricades, but that was before those that yellow tape. In the days that followed, police began a massive investigation. A timeline was quickly established of that night's events. The baby was asleep in the crib, which means that Evelyn placed her there at 7 p.m. as instructed. However, the baby was not covered by a blanket, as Evelyn was instructed to do only 15 minutes later. This, police assumed, meant that the intrusion happened between 7 o'clock and 7.15, only 30 minutes after the Rasmussen family left. So was someone waiting for her, knowing she would be alone? Or was a prowler searching the neighborhood, just waiting for the right window and the right time with the right girl alone? Well, there was some thought that, that maybe the person was was actually aiming for the other babysitter, um, or that it was purely random. There were no curtains on the windows at that point. It was, the houses were, were that new in that neighborhood. so. They could have just been looking for for somebody, um, and not necessarily Evelyn. The leading theory in the case, almost right from the start, was the Prowler theory, that someone was just in the neighborhood waiting for the right moment. After all, it was the night of the big game, and there were lots of other things going on around town. There was an early Halloween dance at Evelyn's high school. With everything going on in town, maybe the Prowler figured that there would be less people around, more girls alone. One theory posited in a January 1954 Chicago Tribune article cast doubt onto Evelyn's perfect exterior, writing that Evelyn may have had some things to hide. The article with the title, A Student Cries Over Lack of Dance Dates, goes on to explain, quote, some of Evelyn's classmates say that she wasn't permitted to have dates, but would have liked to, and that she went to school dances with girls and would leave early crying because she had no date. The article then goes on to ask, quote, Lacrosse was livelier than usual on October 24th. Besides the homecoming game, a student council convention was in town with 400 student council leaders from 100 schools over Wisconsin. There was an all-day session on Friday with business centered at Central High School where Evelyn probably met and talked with new friends. Did Evelyn let someone know, either deliberately or accidentally, that she would be babysitting alone that night? She didn't have a boyfriend, um, is what anybody who I talked to said. She didn't run off with some guy. She was involved in the student council, and there had just been a statewide student council convention or conference in La Crosse, which she attended. You know, she didn't pick up any guys there or anything like that. I mean, there were all kinds of rumors about her that everyone I talked to said were simply not true. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this, this book, too, is because by profession, I'm a personal historian. I help people with their memoirs, help them tell their stories. And Evelyn was only a caricature 
of a 15-year-old girl who had disappeared, I wanted to find out what she was really like. So that was the reason that this was a real loss to our community, frankly. Another fact that seems to point away from the random attacker theory is the location of the Rasmussen House. It was located in a new subdivision called the Cooley Edition. It was a place that would have been hard for a stranger to navigate and to get in and out of quickly. Also, it wasn't exactly isolated. It was a neighborhood with many potential witnesses. In fact, several neighbors came forward when news of Evelyn's disappearance became public to say that they had heard several screams around the time she went missing, around 7.15 or 7.30. A January 11, 1954 Chicago Tribune article on the case wrote of these screams, quote, two blocks away, a girl and her mother sitting outside on the patio asked, what is that horrible screaming? They listened, heard nothing else, and dismissed it as children playing. Two doors down, a man who had just walked outside was stopped in his tracks by the scream, thought it over, and decided it was a child being spanked. In addition, some neighbors also saw an unknown car circling the neighborhood, a light-colored sedan. One man, later known to the public as Mr. X, may have witnessed the entire abduction. Just a few moments after the screams heard by neighbors, Mr. X arrived to pick up his brother-in-law, who lived across the street from the Rasmussens. Already it's clear that this neighborhood was full of people. That's three people who heard screaming, and Mr. X makes a fourth witness. And I, I think the reason he was, his name was kept out of it is police always withhold names, uh, withhold something that, um, that only the person involved, the killer, could, could know. The article continues, quote, Upon arriving, Mr. X saw a car pull into a driveway a block down. In the glare of his headlights and with the help of a full moon, street lamp, and porch lights, he saw two figures staggering along against a yellow house a block away, a man and a girl. Mr. X got out of his car, thought to himself what a quiet and bright night it was, and went into the house to fetch his brother-in-law. He decided the couple he saw were a little tipsy from too much celebration before the homecoming football game. Mr. X may have been one of the last people to see Evelyn Hartley alive. The man who saw Evelyn and her abductor was in and out of his brother-in-law's house in about four minutes. The two men drove off and almost crashed head-on with the car coming around the corner from the direction of the yellow house. In the glare of the headlights, Mr. X noticed only the make and color of the car, the driver in the front seat, and a man and a girl in the back. The girl was bending forward in a manner that made him think this must be the tipsy couple he saw on their way to the football game. But then when he went to work on Monday and he heard about this Evelyn Hartley disappearance, that's when he contacted police. When I interviewed him, he just said he was sorry that he he didn't think of it that night, but how, how could you think of it that night? He thought maybe that, uh, that these people were just partying for the big game. With this initial onset of clues and an eyewitness, the police were sure that the person or persons responsible would be found. The first major discovery of evidence outside of the crime scene was a pair of shoes and a denim jacket believed to belong to Evelyn's attacker. When it was looked at later, it looked like there had been straps. The person wearing it must have used straps, so it might have been uh, someone who, who, who had a harness on him mm -hmm. as he did his work. Tennis shoes were found, too, that were thought to be the, be the ones, and they were discarded as the culprits drove down Highway 14 a couple miles south of, of La Crosse. They threw them out the window. When these items were found, it was a big deal. 
Both articles of clothing had blood on them and were dumped in a place called Coon Valley, about 25 minutes southeast of La Crosse. The shoes were Goodrich tennis shoes, size 11, same size as the prints at the house. Forensics was much more limited than it is today, so when the blood was tested, all that could be gleaned from that was that the blood was the same type as Evelyn's. What the shoes and jacket did do was tell a different story, one about the person who wore them. The shoes had wear patterns that indicated that the owner of the shoes drove a Whizzer motorbike and also possibly worked with machinery. The tennis shoes were interesting because it appeared like there were two different indentations in them, like people of two different sizes had worn them, that they had two different owners. So that was found to be to be interesting. The jacket was found 800 feet away from the shoes, and it had blood on the sleeves as well as on the front and back sides. It was a size 36, which to investigators seemed smaller than a man wearing a size 11 shoe would wear. Well, there were a couple things on the jacket. One is that it was cut off so that it didn't go as far down as jackets of this type would. So they were wondering if that meant that whatever work he was doing, he just had to have less bulk there. And that investigator who was hired studied that jacket and studied that jacket and felt that there was the um, faded areas that indicated that there must have been straps across the chest which is why he thought that maybe it was a boatswain or a steeplejack. So somebody who was who's basically working in a high place. Also found a few days after the disappearance was a pair of panties and a bra, also bloodstained. They had been tossed from a car and landed near an underpass, also on a road south of La Crosse. Evelyn's mother, Ethel, said that the underwear could have been Evelyn's, but she wasn't sure. They were Evelyn's size, but it turned out that these items were another dead end. It was supposed to be the kind of bra that she wore as well. They had some of the same blood type, but she had A blood type, which 45% of the population had. After these horrific pieces of evidence were found, and with still no sign of Evelyn, the mystery turned into a media frenzy, dominating both local and national news. The aftermath is what's so fascinating to me. The amount of people they searching, they spread out, they had Boy Scouts who were searching, young kids in effect. Thousands of people looked for her throughout the area in October 1953, including the National Guard, police, Boy Scouts, and students and teachers from La Crosse State College. Civil Air Patrol and Air Force helicopters and planes were also used. An October 27th article in the Cincinnati Inquirer wrote, Grim searchers probed every bridge and culvert, river and slough for signs of Evelyn. End quote. Some reports say that local graves were dug up to see if she was buried with the newly dead. Everybody, everybody wanted to be part of it. Everybody wanted to help this family. It just seemed so, so simplistic to me. You know, but I think it showed people really wanted to, to find her, wanted to know what happened. Though well-intentioned, police later worried that the initial interest around the Rasmussen property may have destroyed evidence and initial clues. According to La Crosse Sheriff William Black, years later, a key problem in the case was, quote, too much information and not enough people to check them out. Everybody had a theory, end quote. The media descended on La Crosse, and with the publicity, fear set in. And part of the reason they descended from all over is because Kidnappings were a big deal in that era. Think of the Lindbergh case, and part of it is because she was an ordinary girl in an ordinary home and someone had come in and taken her. 
it really took away any innocence that lacrosse felt at the time. There were people who put bars on their basement windows after Evelyn disappeared. Very frightened people. As initial leads began to wane in the case, police asked the public for help. They asked attendants at gas stations to check back seats for blood, and... There was even a time when people voluntarily had their cars inspected at gas stations, and in return for, for doing that, and they were all cleared, there was a little, little paper you could put on your car that said, my car is okay, checked by in the date when it was checked. As the case went on with little leads, townspeople had a saying, if you want to get away with murder, move to lacrosse. The investigation stalled. In May the following year, 1954, police made a desperate move, requiring all high school-aged boys to take lie detector tests. They hired this outside investigator, and he did a couple things that, to me, were extraordinary. He decided he wanted to do mass lie detector tests of every student at the high school she went to, as well as the other high schools in La Crosse and the university. It was, it was all males. 17,050 male students were asked five simple questions related to the case and were tested in what was the largest mass use of lie detector tests. But I mean, just imagine that. I, um, but people did it. Nobody said no because they felt so deeply that they wanted to help. Did they have any serious suspect that they pursued more than anyone else? No, not really. They, they checked into her father, which is standard procedure. Um, he took a, a took a, a lie detector test, and also he was home with his wife. So how could he? He he couldn't have right, right. have done that. Another unusual tactic that investigators took was putting the bloody shoes and jacket believed to belong to Evelyn's kidnapper on display around the area at local fairs and other public places. In towns all over, within 30 miles, 30, 40 miles of La Crosse. And he would go there and see if people recognized it or anything like that. And they thought thousands and thousands of people had seen that. A big setback in the case was the unwillingness of the FBI to get involved, citing a lack of evidence that the case was a federal crime. Community members were outraged. A November 1953 letter to the editor of the La Crosse Tribune read, When is kidnapping not a kidnapping? If I understand the facts correctly, our local authorities asked federal aid in solving a sex crime rather than a kidnapping, which is a federal crime. I can't help but feel that the FBI has adopted a hands-off policy because of a technicality raised by our own police. Early on, a leading theory was that this crime was committed by a sexual deviant who was local to lacrosse, a monster among them. What made the crime seem sexually motivated to detectives may have been the underwear and bra that was found or the violent circumstances involved in her disappearance. Police rounded up sex offenders and the assistant to the DA at the time said, quote, it may take a long time to get a confession, but when we do, I think we will find that the man who did it is a highly respected member of our society who went back to his normal everyday routine of living and has been able to maintain a facade of perfect innocence and composure. He then added, many sex deviants appear to be perfectly normal to everyone who knows them. All of these competing theories, along with the fear and media frenzy, led to many false leads, false confessions, and even taunting letters that were sent to the Hartley family. 
In this news clip, filmed years later, the reporter reads these letters. But all the attention didn't help solve the case. It brought the cranks out of the woodwork. Mr. Hartley began to receive letters. Letters like this one from Devil's Lake, North Dakota. The man wrote, just a note to let you know that Miss Hartley is in my power. Don't try to trace this letter because I didn't leave any evidence. I'll let you know the ransom later. You stupid people almost had me back there, but I managed to escape. It was signed with the skull and crossbones. Another letter from St. Paul read, Don't worry anymore about that Evelyn Hartley. She went away with a man of lacrosse, is well and fine, and after all that commotion is afraid to come home, phone, or write. You will hear from her when all has calmed down. All that so-called evidence was planted to mislead. She wanted to be forgotten, is already sorry of her bargain. I would have written you before had I known. She signed it M.M. Yeah, and, and I've seen the files, so they please pretty much let me read everything, every letter that they wrote everywhere seeking information and, and all that stuff. Um, the other thing that, that was people, you know, claimed to have known her or had, there was even a woman in the Middle East in the 50, sometime in the 50s or 60s who claimed to be her. You know, how did people know this name? But they did because... It was in, in newspapers all over the country. People were picked up, men were, were picked up and released periodically. I think they probably had so many false hopes, so much pain that, I, I mean, I truly feel for that family. Despite all of the initial fervor, as the years went on, Evelyn's case grew colder and colder. In 1957, interest was sparked again when a man named Ed was arrested at his isolated farmhouse six miles outside of Plainville, Wisconsin, a two-hour drive from La Crosse. In fact, Ed was born in La Crosse. People were interested in his possible connection to Evelyn because Ed, whose full name was Ed Gein, turned out to be one of the most horrific murderers in U.S. history, famously murdering and exhuming bodies and making decoration of body parts which were strewn throughout his house. Many sources claimed that Gein still had family living in La Crosse, and on the night Evelyn disappeared, Gein was actually in town visiting, not far from where Evelyn was babysitting. But no trace of Evelyn was ever found on Gein's property. He passed a lie detector test and denied any involvement in her disappearance. He was no longer considered a serious suspect by investigators. But because of the sheer horror of his crimes, there are still people who believe he could have been involved. Gein died in a mental institution in 1984. They had every possible theory and they and they worked it and worked it. And I think they were embarrassed that that they didn't solve it. I mean, I think they continued to be embarrassed because there had been a couple of other unsolved cases, murder cases in La Crosse, which gave it that that title of the, the place where you can can get away with murder. With this last lead that fizzled, and with no more clues or information coming in, the case was at a dead end. By 2003, when Sue began research for her book. All that remained of the investigation was in a box, sitting in a La Crosse police evidence locker. But because of her interest in the case, along with a new way to submit tips and information, Sue helped to find a new lead in the case. And I was hired to do it originally by two realtors, one of whom was just fascinated by cold cases. They placed an ad asking if anybody had any stories or, or information um, and came to a mailbox. Somebody had a tape 
a recording of people back from the 50s. This man's name was Mel Williams, and he was a musician who was recording a band at a bar called The Raven in Lafarge, Wisconsin, 45 minutes south of La Crosse. This was in 1968, 15 years after Evelyn's disappearance. And in this tape, there was a guy named Whitey Barkley who said, that's about the time you hauled that Hartley girl down there. And then this man, Clyde Tywee Peterson, said, eyes up on that deal. He says, but the thing is, you hauled her from lacrosse down to, and back to lacrosse, huh? And he said, no. You didn't haul her back every time? And he said, no. You did haul her up there, though. No witness, no proof. They haven't found her, have they? When the Lacrosse Tribune interviewed Williams about this tape in 2004, he said, quote, Well, I forgot I even had the tape. I simply forgot about it until I saw the story in the paper. I do know that they were capable of it. In the tape, Clyde Tywee Peterson is telling the story to Mel Williams, and Whitey, who is described as a local, quote, veteran drinker, is the one who goads him into talking. In the tape, Peterson implicates himself and another man named Jack Gaultier. The article describes him as a vagabond. Peterson goes on to describe that Gaultier knew Evelyn somehow and that she would be alone babysitting that night. The two, Peterson and Gaultier, drove to the Rasmussen house, attacked and kidnapped her, and as they say on the tape, took her to a friend's farm in Lafarge, where Gaultier killed her. There's little information about Golfair online, but what I did find was that he had a criminal record. In 1953, the same year Evelyn went missing, he was tried for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. He was 24 that year. The court record doesn't go into much detail about this crime. And unfortunately, Golfair committed suicide 10 years after Evelyn's disappearance. He, uh, he probably had no more than an eighth grade education. He was said to weigh no more than 130 pounds. They were people who, who lived on, on the marginal side of, of society. After World War II, people didn't really have any way of making a living other than, you know, off the, off the clock or whatever. Somebody I, I interviewed about him said, quote, he's the kind of man who would give you the shirt off his back and then steal it back. So police were absolutely fascinated by this. We gave the recording to police. And they looked at it and they pulled out some, some evidence. The YD guy was still alive at that point, but had dementia and could not be interviewed. The other man had died, but they thought that was the best lead that they'd ever gotten, actually. Could he have been involved? Sure. Would we ever be able to prove it? No. A news article around the time the tip came out in 2004 claims that police asked people to stay off the property where Evelyn was said to have been buried. It also mentions that the location is in a Mississippi floodplain and that it is likely the body would have washed away. The article makes it sound like there would be a search of the area, but there's no other information, no later news of a search, no later news of finding a body either. So this lead was either false or not credible, a search was never conducted, or nothing of interest was found. There were astrologers who claimed to know there were letters kept coming with, a, uh, you know, claimed she was buried on 17th Street in La Crosse in the garden of, of a neighbor somebody wrote to the family. And, some, and a drunken man in a jail in 1960 in St. Paul claimed he was a steeplejack. And he started talking about the, about the Hartley girl in jail, a clairvoyant from Los Angeles, claiming that it had the solution. 
not so much in the last 10 years, I would guess, but, but the family was continually tormented. I'll tell you, people would spill. They would rush to, to any scene where there's the least bit credible uh, possibility that, that they could solve this. It just seems like with all of the evidence that it should have been solved. I think it's uh, it's pretty shocking that she was never found. Yeah. Well, you know, it's we're looking at through 21st century eyes. Susan's book, which you can find a link to on our website, thinairpodcast.com, came out in 2012. So I've talked to police officers who were there at the time. I've talked to current police officers who still had that feeling that they wanted to solve this if there's any way possible. I talked to her best friend, Evelyn's best friend. When I reached her in California, it was so obvious how choked up she was and still was, and she felt that there was no closure, which is true for, for everybody. These were people whose lives were shaped by having had this, this horrific experience when they were in high school. There was no closure because she was never found. Her family had been tormented for more than 50 years at that point and did not want to talk with me. They had just been through too much. Evelyn's family, parents Richard and Ethel, and their children Carolyn, who was six, and older brother Thomas, who was 22 at the time, were never the same after Evelyn's disappearance. They were crushed by it. Ethel felt she knew what happened when she saw the trail of bloodstains the day after the disappearance. This moment is described in an interview with the Chicago Tribune. Quote, Mrs. Hartley made her first visit since the disappearance to the Rasmussen house today. Escorted by her husband and outwardly composed, she made a personal survey of the grounds, staring wordlessly at the gaping basement window frame through which an intruder is thought to have entered. The mother gave her first evidence of breaking down when she was shown a section of trampled lawn near this window where dark stains were visible on the blades of grass. Turning to her husband, she said, we know she isn't alive now. The Hartleys didn't speak with the media much after the disappearance. With Ethel telling reporters a week after the disappearance, quote, I've answered all the questions I can. I can't think about it anymore. It's terrible. It's almost beyond bearing. It really does make sense that they didn't want to be interviewed for this book. I just think they reached the point of, what is the good of this? Right. What, what good comes, and only pain. In the early days of the investigation, on November 6, 1953, Richard made a public plea to the abductor. He said, quote, at this point, it appears we need a break. Somebody knows something that would be helpful to us. Of course, the person who has the most information is the abductor. I'm appealing to him to reveal the location of Evelyn or her body. Please, he adds, in some way, tell us some information on her whereabouts. I mean, who do you think could have done this and why do you think they did it? It's my opinion it was random, but I can't prove that. Those guys who who are on the tape might have known something or or that guy might have done it. It sure sounds like it because he repeated it multiple times in that tape, but I truly do not know. Evelyn Hartley has been missing since October 24, 1953. Foul play is suspected in her disappearance. Today she would be 78 years old. 
If you have any tips, clues, or other information, please contact the La Crosse Police Department. Their number is on our website, thinairpodcast.com. We would also like to thank Susan T. Hessel for speaking with us. You can find her book, Where's Evelyn, on Amazon. Links are also on our website. The music you heard today in our podcast was created by our friends. Additional music was provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find his music at chriszabriskie.com. For more information on this story, our website also has articles, photos, and links to more information on the Evelyn Hartley story. 